we are two co-founders, both PhDs in electrical and computer engineering. Our whole career was based on developing algorithms. And that's what we did in the last seven years as well at Mall IQ, where we utilize the signals in an indoor environment where GPS doesn't distinguish which floor, which corridor you're in. We utilize those signals to triangulate first at the floor level, then whether the customer is walking in the corridor or in a particular store. So we have algorithms dedicated for each of those decisions. And then since we have a map of all these shopping malls, downtowns and airports, we can understand specifically which brand and which category the customer spends time in, which is a really good indication of what they're about to buy. You have just heard from Bhatt Asad, co-founder and CEO at MallIQ, a location intelligence platform. During this episode of the Exponential Finance Podcast, Bata will talk us in detail through the unique value position MallIQ provides to financial institutions, retailers and the consumer. MallIQ works within the triangle of location, loyalty, and payments, with an entirely software-based solution, which is a significant differentiator from the competition. So let us dive right in. Good evening, Batu. It's great to see you again. We met last week at the Singapore FinTech Festival, and now we branched out into different directions again. Actually, it came straight from Money 2020, so you've got two conferences in a row and now back to North America. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a great offering that you have something that we haven't really seen in this shape before. It's called Mall IQ. And before we talk about anything else, if you can just explain the basics of what MallIQ does. Of course, MallIQ drives purchase intent into transactions for financial institutions, fintechs, and retailers in a way to understand their own customer's journey in the physical world before they pay for something so that they can engage their own customers, improving their customer experience, and making sure that their financial and other products are used more often, being top of mind. Now, that sounds like you need quite a bit of information then from the device that I'm holding. Obviously, as you said, you're working with reputable financial institutions, so you need to find a balance that protects the reputation of the institution and is not overwhelming, abusive from the consumer's perspective. So how do you strike that balance? We start that by making sure that MolIQ does not get any personally identifiable information, building the trust from the beginning with the institution. The institution tokenizes an ID that only they can match with their customer ID. That makes sure that no information comes to MolIQ, it's regulatory compliant, GDPR, CCPA, and otherwise. And on the engagement side, we give the flexibility to the owner of the mobile app. And we don't price it in a way that would incentivize them to engage too much. So typically, they have contact policies where they would only engage maybe once a day or a couple of times a week to make sure that customers are getting the value without being overwhelmed. And our dashboard has all those controls where they can do this automatically, systematically, and based on their behavior, people who are 
clicking and getting good responses, they might continue getting push notifications. The ones that do not respond can be dialed back automatically. So you're still making it adaptive and useful at the same time. So if I draw a comparison for prior conversations we had on the podcast, the engagement model is more a WeChat interaction, very few per day rather than a Facebook model where I get like 200 per day or so. And obviously the WeChat model is much higher priced for the interaction and it also has a much, much higher conversion rate. So I think from a consumer perspective, they're much more accepted. More like you gives away the origin of the company. So that seems to have been the initial use case. So when you talk about a consumer conversion in that mall context, what does that mean now in reality? How does the retailer or a financial institution app use your technology to drive that increased conversion? Actually, during the pandemic, it gave us a chance to evolve our offering as well, as well as use cases. Initially, as you mentioned, the name was Mall IQ. Now we have expanded that to Location IQ or Locatic, uh, meaning that anything from a high-frequency, low-ticket item like coffee, such as Starbucks as one of our customers who want to understand their behavior, customers' behavior, and engage in a relevant way. And then grocery shopping, that's been in our world during the pandemic, even when the shopping malls were closed, you would still get groceries. Carrefour is an example of one of our clients that utilizes this to engage their own customers. Then any kind of payment in a shopping mall or organized retailer, downtown, airport, falls under our initial coverage where any kind of financial institution, whether it's a traditional bank, or a neobank or a fintech can get the attention of their customers being top of mind when they're about to buy something. So they would use their payment method or their buy now, pay later or personal loan product. Then it goes beyond that to big ticket items, vehicles, and even for home purchases, understanding the location as an indication of a need. So knowing the needs of your customer allows the financial institution or the brand to engage them, provide them with relevant information. So it's a win-win-win kind of environment. So since we've been in Singapore just now, Singapore has whatever, 40, 50 different payment apps. What you're saying essentially, if I have one that uses the more like you located technology, they are able to serve more context-driven offers and incentives compared to the competition. Exactly. So financial institutions and fintechs, their goal is to drive sustainable card usage and loan usage. And they take a lot of effort to partner up with merchants to provide benefits for their own members. But the fact is customers do not open up every app of their payment platforms and scroll through the offers. So awareness at the right time is an important problem. And we address that by understanding somebody going to a particular store and understanding they're shopping for a product in that category, maybe cosmetics, maybe sports goods, maybe electronics. So this way, they can only inform about the relevant things so it's good for the consumer, it's good for the financial institution, 
and it's good for the merchant partner. When I heard the more like you story first, I was drawing reference to other business models I heard before that describe this triangle of payments, location, and loyalty, which essentially is the space that you're in as well. What is different that the other vendors I had experience with are purely driven by GPS signal, which is still pretty raw. And you're taking that triangle onto a much more detailed level. And so how do you do that technically? That's a great question we've been asked many, many times. So that's our differentiation. So we are two co-founders, both PhDs in electrical and computer engineering. Our whole career was based on developing algorithms. And that's what we did in the last seven years as well at MOLIQ, where we utilize the signals in an indoor environment where GPS doesn't distinguish which floor, which corridor you're in. We utilize those signals to triangulate first at the floor level, then whether the customer is walking in the corridor or in a particular store. So we have algorithms dedicated for each of those decisions. And then since we have a map of all these shopping malls, downtowns, and airports, we can understand specifically which brand and which category the customer spends time in, which is a really good indication of what they're about to buy. Keep in mind that a bank or a fintech would know about this information after the fact, after somebody uses that card to pay for it. We are making this discovery before the fact, so there is time to inform the customer and maybe nudge them towards one card or the other that they're already having in their wallet. So I think the worst thing that can happen as a consumer is that you just bought sneakers and you come out of the shop and you get a 20% voucher or so. So <laughs> you're getting ahead of that, it seems. Exactly. That's the worst feeling that only if I knew that if I use this card, that's already in my pocket, I would have gotten benefit, whether it's monetary or a product or an information. So not knowing or learning after the fact is even worse than not knowing at all at some times. So the other thing I obviously learned in our conversation was the settings that exist on the mobile phone. And probably like many consumers, when we want to use an app or so, we just click, right? Nobody really reads all the notifications. And in fact, there is setting that says always track the location. So you're keeping that on and your offering in return needs to be compelling enough that people keep the setting on and don't switch it off because they are annoyed. But that also gives you the information when the app is not on, which was a revelation for me that it actually existed. But that's a setting on most mobile phones that you ultimately use. Yes, I think that change that iOS led and then now Android with its latest versions are following suit is a welcomed improvement from our perspective because the overall pie is shrinking where irrelevant games or apps that really do not use those location information to the benefit of the user can no longer get it simply. But since we only work with reputable financial institutions and retailers that you trust, then our rate of getting location permission to be able to inform the customers, even they forget to open up the app, is still high. And on top of that, we add additional compelling reasons, like 
using location as a powerful tool for protecting against card fraud and app login fraud. So once the customer is well informed, they would give this percentage of location permission. And when asked again, they knowingly continue to give that because they are well informed and they see the benefit. From what you just said, Batut, it all happens within the one app. And I, I think that is also important in the context of the new Apple privacy policies, where the end user can restrict the tracing and the use of third-party information, which clearly, as we've seen, has had a, a big impact on Facebook financials. They had like significant decrease in their advertising revenue. But you can still do anything with the user's contents within a single app, which is the space you're operating in. And so for the individual app, the additional intelligence you generate becomes just so much more valuable because also the alternative has been broken away, right? Exactly. Third-party data with Meta and Google, as you mentioned, is diminishing in terms of its relevance. And Apple's tracking controls have a lot to do with that. Since from day one, we didn't rely on these across-app cookies or IDs, we didn't get affected. And similarly to the location permission levels, the overall pie has shrunk, but MolaIQ's piece has stayed consistent and even more relevant. Nowadays, companies, financial institutions, fintechs, and retailers need to have a first-party strategy, how to understand their own customers without relying on Google and Facebook. And it makes better sense in terms of unit economics as well. So if you find good new customers to bring on, great. But usually, new customers are not sticking around. So it's better to keep your customers, current customers happy and increase their lifetime value. And we believe that first-party data allows brands to be able to do that. The other thing that's noticeable is that you're entirely software-driven. Whenever I look around me, I'm, I'm so happy that I've done only software in my life as well because hardware is just so much more difficult. The other solutions in that space that also use hardware components, essentially beacons in the shops to generate similar information. But it seems very obvious from the surface if you're just software-driven on an app with all the sensor information, that that's much easier to maintain than having physical hardware in stores. So we've done the hard work at the beginning by developing these unique algorithms that do not need any hardware. Since we've done the hard work, now just a software solution is scalable enough that we don't have to produce any hardware, change batteries, make agreements with individual shopping malls or brands which makes it infeasible to create a complete coverage of where people can shop because hardware is hard to maintain. And usually you cannot put a hardware to one store and to their competitor and expect them to exchange those data. I remember back in the day, Google and Facebook tried similar things even mailing out beacons for free for stores to plug into their outlets within the retail store. But that didn't work because when you have a hardware and when you have those restrictions, then people are pushing back against that. 
Now, the downside maybe seems that if you're engaging all the sensors in the mobile phone, of which there's so many these days, my battery should be drained pretty quickly. And so how do you manage the longevity of my device in relation to the information and the intent that you want to generate? So we have evolved our process and our algorithms with this in mind as well to never be a top 10 battery user within a consumer's app. And the way we do it is threefold. First of all, when you are not near a shopping region, like a shopping mall or a downtown, we have a net zero battery usage. So only when somebody comes near through a geofencing trigger, we realize that now it's a good time to have more accurate spatial and temporal location generation. And when you get out of that zone, again, it goes back to zero. And we have all the knobs and controls to see the accuracy versus better usage trade-off. So we can keep a check on what's the business requirements and what's the minimum amount of battery, data, and memory usage. We also have enterprise-level guarantees, such as if the percentage of the battery goes below a percentage, then we either slow down the frequency or stop the service altogether. So we are never creating an environment where the battery is too low for the consumer, for their safety, for their convenience. We don't do that. And based on their models, we can also do adaptations so it doesn't use a lot of battery if it's an old phone. Thank you. So you essentially a two-tiered model. So it's a GPS signal first, and then once you're in a relevant zone, it triggers the activation and becomes more detailed. The other challenge I think that was thrown out is you're still a startup, although you have great traction. You're not on every financial institution's app just yet, so there's room to grow. But let's assume you're very successful and Again, in the Singapore context, you're on UOB and you're on DBS and basically both using your service and you're now in a mall. And as a consumer, I suddenly get competing offers from both. That would be a little bit awkward as well, wouldn't it? Yes, theoretically, that's possible because each individual app has complete control over what's the journey and what's the criteria to trigger a campaign and they would be blind to the other's campaign. But in practical terms, they usually have different partnerships. One might be partnering with Nike, another might be partnering with Adidas. Also, you as a person, even though you are the same person, you might be in different augmentation within each company's perspective. You might be using UOB a lot, so they might be trying to get you to do some kind of action, in DBS, maybe you're not spending as much. So the types of engagements and offers might differ because their perspective of your financial transactions will be different. So it's not impossible, but highly improbable. Even in that rare case, it's a utility for the consumer that they're aware of all their alternatives while they're shopping for sports goods, and they can pick and choose the one that's best for them. 
And I think it comes down to, again, the anonymity, because you just get the tokenized ID, you just get a number. It's actually impossible for you to correlate these two activities across two of your clients. And that's a good thing. The minuscule probability that there might be this conflict is the price you're paying, and it's a small price. We need to hit the part of the show where we're talking about how more like you actually makes money. Great technology, it's very smooth, it's easily integrated, and how do you get compensated for it? So we started out with a very transparent, simple to understand and execute business model, where it's a software as a service based on the number of users who have given location permission. So if an institution is new to providing location-based utility for their consumers, their percentage of acceptance might be low, but they start with the number of users that we can add value to. And in the recent weeks and months, we have evolved into a SaaS plus revenue share kind of a model where the SaaS base model is very low. So there is little or no friction into the implementation. And as we show incremental revenue, then the institutions are very happy seeing the ROI multiple. They're happy to communicate this throughout their organization and see the improvements. What are some of the experience values? Clearly, when you serve the incentive, there should be a higher level of engagement. But then the question is, is that sustainable or how long does the impact last? What is the typical click rate that you have on acceptance of these incentives, given that they are highly context-driven? And how does that evolve over time? The responses are very dependent on the offer itself. So if you give like 1% off, nobody would click and redeem that. If you give 50% off, everybody would respond to that. So my answer and the way we sustainably measure the results is an A-B model, how people would react if the same campaign, the same people with the right time and location engagement versus a generic engagement. So we look at three ways of how do we improve. The first one is looking at the same cohort of people, what were their card usage and spending before there was a campaign, during the campaign that MoleIQ triggered at the right time and location, and after the campaign. We typically see two to three times more card usage during the campaign. And even when the campaign ends, we see somewhere around 20 to 30% uplift, which is sustained uplift compared to before. And the reason for that is now consumers see the notifications coming from this app as more relevant because they have experienced that before. Another way of looking at that is when we send the push notification at time zero, within the first 5, 10, 15 minutes, a lot of the customers converted into transaction. So they reacted by clicking and then actually redeeming that offer. So that's a great indication of looking at purchases before the push notification and after the push notification. And finally, the ultimate test is doing an A-B test where it's the same number of users, it's the same campaign, but we sent 80% of the customers the push notification 
and have a 20% control group where the incremental revenue is calculated very easily and the financial institution can see the uplift and calculate their ROI in a comfortable way. Given again how many payment apps there are, one aspect outside of the immediate purchase maybe is really training your muscle memory to using a specific app again and being reminded that it's actually on your phone, given that we have so many apps installed that also some of them we might not be using. There's a few dead bodies on each of our mobile phones of apps that we haven't used for a long time. Can your technology or your incentives also help to reinvigorate, to redirect to this use of these skeletons on the mobile phone? Exactly. Activation or reactivation is a big part of what we do. So knowing which stores and restaurants and places that they spend time and money allows a very targeted way of engaging the customer. So they're not changing where they're shopping, but you might be top of mind in terms of how they pay. And that's something we have done with Starbucks, where churn customers, meaning people who haven't used app for a payment for the last 12 months, a quarter of them could get back and start transacting again with the Starbucks app at those stores. Now, this sounds very attractive, I think, for any merchant or any any financial institutions, any fintech to apply your services. Now, the space, the ecosystem that they're operating in is pretty significant. So if anybody's interested, how would they get started using Molecule? In each of the cases, we talk with the business unit, whether it's the card portfolio manager or the loan management system. And we talk about the business objectives and design and curate a pilot program with them, which might last anywhere between one to three months, where we design campaigns, we set up KPIs to monitor, and then we deliver them. That's a very straightforward process to go through, where they would, at the end of the process, see the ROI calculated internally and see how much benefit they can get so we can design the pricing in the long term according to that as well. Great. And so it's relatively easy to get started. And the compensation model is, although there's a base fee, obviously, to run the service, is largely success-driven, which is pretty attractive, I think, for anybody using it. Plus, it gives you good upside if you're hitting the ball out of the park. Exactly. We currently have a proud 100% conversion from pilot to full production. And we always give credit back to the financial institution, the amount of budget they spend for this test and learn pilot phase. If they continue to full production, which is 100% of the case, we credit that budget back to them. That shows how much confidence we have into this product. And we are not just leaving them with the software, but we have a great customer success team that learn from other use cases with the other clients and bring the best practices and scenarios to make sure that they're successful. Thank you. You've got a pretty good client list already, and you're also fundraising. You've been in this business for a while already, so there's revenue coming in. 
it's probably less a matter of getting additional funding because you're generating a good cash flow, but finding strategic investors as well to expand the services into different areas. Can you talk a bit about your initial investors and what you're up to right now? We are very proud of our investors. We started out with some angel investors and 500 startups. Since then, 500 startups invested again. 212.vc invested in us before the pandemic. And a second time after the pandemic, we have FIS WorldPay as one of our investors. We have the Royal Bank of Canada's family office Holt as one of our investors. We believe in continuing investment, doing more than just bringing money in terms of networking, in terms of giving us feedback into the industry and being really strategic. And we are currently fundraising as well. And we're going to announce it officially at the Holt Demo Day on November 10th in Montreal. We are again looking for not just expanding our runway, but we have a 10 million sales pipeline that we are keen to execute by expanding our customer success team. And we're looking for strategic investors that are believing in what we are passionate about, believing in our mission to make it inclusive, as well as utilitarian for financial institutions, fintechs, and retailers in a way that is privacy first, in a way that is utilitarian for the consumers, and in a way that makes the partnership with merchants win-win situation. There's many use cases that can derive, and we've primarily focused on the conversion and the purchase intent here. Let us turn for a moment to Nachi Das, who is the head of business development for More Like You, to talk about some of the additional use cases. The ability of More Like You to build a comprehensive consumer profile based on the fact that you can get the location information even when the consumer is not using that particular app is vital for a company to understand its consumers, where they're going, where they're gathering, what other stores are they visiting. And therefore, it is able to tailor appropriate campaign messages, target subsets of consumers for greater conversion. And we have seen this time and again when we talk to various institutions. They say, well, I would like to know if my consumers are going to my rival mall or are they going to rival brand. Right now, if a consumer does not use an institution's app or credit card, they are blind. They don't know what they're doing. A mall IQ is able to deliver the 360-degree real-time information, historical information. That leads me to my next point. Almost all of our credit applications rely on historical looking back information. FICO scores, are they working in a stable company, getting a regular paycheck, and so on. Today, as the gig economy expands and as people are more and more independent, it is vital to get a real-time snapshot of a consumer's spending patterns, credit patterns, to make the appropriate credit decision. That could be extremely valuable for a buy now, pay later, or an at-the-moment purchase credit uh, application, or even for mortgages. So I think the combination of real-time credit information with real-time historical consumer journey information married with credit analytics is going to be a powerful solution. 
Thank you, Nachi. Let's turn back to Bartu. So Nachi drew out some interesting use cases there. And it's really only limited by the imagination what can be done. And, and ultimately, you have three groups. You've got financial institution, you've got the merchant, you have end consumer. And clearly, different services could be derived from this information for these groups. For example, I've seen maps of the activity that these users have during specific periods. So classic contrast weekdays versus weekends and where they're spending your time. And clearly, if I'm immersion, if I'm Starbucks, which you mentioned before, and I'm thinking about opening a new store, getting information on the flow and where people actually are physically is pretty important information for that planning. Totally agree. We get a lot of inbound requests from merchants, either that are using our other product or just want to optimize their physical real estate investments in terms of where to open stores, close stores, even within a shopping mall, which floor and which corridor is the best. That is something that has a lot of consequences because opening up a store in the wrong place takes a long time to discover and then a lot of sunk investments happening. So we help with that a lot. And there are some other use cases as well in terms of fraud prevention. When the card is somewhere else and the app is somewhere else, you might get that protection. Or the other way around, you might be traveling to a new location, you might be dining out or getting gas, and your card might be declined because of some rule. But if your location can be used in real time, then those card swipes will not be declined. You will get on with your life without being affected by fraud or being too protected against fraud, which disrupts your way of making payments. In other cases, for insurance, for health and wellness, for nudging your consumers at the right time with the right incentives to be a little bit more healthy and seeing their reaction afterwards as well as a positive reinforcement. These are all the things that can be done. I'm sure there are 10 other ways that your intent, your location can be utilized in a way that's beneficial for the consumer itself. Fantastic. Looking at the Singapore FinTech Festival, we've seen lots of areas maturing. So there's more payments vendors, more stable payment vendors, but it's still payments, right? We've seen more crypto, for example, but maybe some of the novelty was in credit and lending, which, as Nachi explained, is an area you can very well support as well. I found the Molecule business model or also the technical approach quite unique. Uh, it's certainly not something that you found elsewhere at the Singapore FinTech Festival. And in fact, I think you also explained there's not many companies that actually have this sophisticated technology. So it's really differentiating. It's a unique market positioning. And hence, I really appreciate you taking the time now flying back and forth and preparing for the port accelerator to share your story with us. And we hopefully see you back in Asia then with a, with a good back of new business opportunities soon again. So thank you very much, Batu. Thank you for having me and looking forward to connecting again and being back in Asia where we see a lot of collaboration and opportunities and room to grow. Thank you.